1: Will set you free.
0: Headline Edition, July 8th, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army.
2: They were too fast to be an airplane.
1: Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where you listen because you don't want to believe, you listen because you want to know. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for tuning in once again. A big welcome to our first-time listeners. I'm curious, new listener, how did you find us? Did you bump into our website, or did a friend refer you? I'm really curious, would you send me an email and let me know? Very simple, send it to mail, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com. And by the way, thank you for all your emails. I really appreciate your comments and questions. The Veritas video contest is still going until March 31st, at which point I will install a polling system so you can vote. Anyone out there, you still have time to submit your video. Just visit our homepage, veritasshow.com, and click on Video for instructions. The Facebook page keeps growing, and it's a great way for me to keep in touch with you. Thank you to those of you who joined me last Friday for another chat. Sorry Sergeant Stone could not attend. I am told he's not a fast typist. And since I have received so many emails letting me know, it's very difficult for other listeners around the world to join us on the chats. They have requested a forum instead. That way, no one will feel excluded. Well, as promised, your wish has been granted. The Veritas Forum is now up and running, and this is the formal announcement and invitation for all the truth seekers around the world to join the many topics and discussions taking place. Thank you to our two new volunteer moderators. Remember, this is not only a show, it's a movement, and we keep adding new features to our website. Tonight's special guest is Jim Sparks, abductee and author of The Keepers, An Alien Message for the Human Race. Next week's special guest on Friday, March the 6th, is Grant Cameron, UFOs and Presidents. Here's a summary in Grant's own words. You will be led on a journey that will show you the entire known history of how the most powerful man in the world has dealt with the most highly classified secret of the last century. In short, this is the story of how the President and the White House have dealt with the mystery of UFOs. You don't want to miss it. And the week after, Grant Cameron... On another Friday the 13th, March the 13th, our special guest will be Richard Dolan, author of UFOs and the National Security State, Chronology of a Cover-Up. And here's some proof the Veritas show is truly going around the world.
3: Veritas
0: La verdad. Pero queremos saber la verdad o nos gusta inventarla.
3: Queremos saber para aprovechar o simplemente queremos soñar.
1: A few days ago, we were contacted by a popular show from Spain with the name of Años Luz, which means light years. It is another eclectic show with similar subjects to ours, and they were kind enough to interview me during one of their segments. Greetings and thanks to Marisol and José Antonio Roldán for your gracious invitation. For those of you who may want to listen to the full segment, I have placed it at the end of the show. It's in Spanish, and I hope you enjoy it. And now, breaking news and some headlines. First, the headlines. Ancient City Found Irradiated from Atomic Blast. UFOs and Aliens in Space. Obama release of UFO Files will prepare humanity for 2012 solar waves. The Veritas Show is now available on iTunes. The Veritas Show is making contact with David Icke for an interview. Galaxy may be full of Earth's alien life. Italy's Air Force head says UFOs possibly ET craft and how to protect yourself from an alien encounter. For more on each headline head to our blog. And now to some breaking news exclusive of the Veritas show. A few first to interview dr sala to discuss these additional facts that further corroborate what transpired 55 years ago let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with this surprise and exclusive interview with dr michael sala jim sparks interview will follow if you're a coast to coast am listener you will hear the highlights of what dr sala would have shared with you if the power outage had not mysteriously happened just seconds before his interview you don't want to miss what Dr. Sala has to say. Don't go anywhere. most Veritas fans know, we here at Veritas are nightly listeners to Coast to Coast AM, and like many listeners, we're disappointed by the power outage which caused the rescheduling of Veritas veteran Dr. Michael Sala. Dr. Sala, who reminds everyone of the Margaret Mead quote, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has wanted to remind the Disclosure Movement about a number of items of contemporary interest, such as the 55th anniversary of the Eisenhower ET meeting. So we have invited Dr. Sala to join us for a brief appearance to hit the highlights before we get to the interview with abductee Jim Sparks. We at Veritas will not let the powers that be, nor the power grid, stop the truth or hamper Disclosure. And briefly, We at Veritas are loyal fans of Coast to Coast AM, which remains the only nightly source of disclosure, debate, and live discourse, and which is available to the general AM radio world as well as through internet stream. Veritas champions all venues of truth, knowledge, and disclosure. And for this Veritas Show exclusive interview with breaking news, directly from the International UFO Congress in Laughlin, Nevada, Dr. Michael Sala. Dr. Sala, how are you, and welcome back to the show.
3: Aloha, Mel. I'm glad to be back on the show and uh, really look forward to being able to share a little bit about uh, some of the recent events and uh, what's happened here at Loughlin and the uh, Coast to Coast interview that didn't go forward.
1: Fantastic. And yes, uh, I want to know all about it. First of all, what happened? I heard from George Knapp that the lights went out 30 seconds before the interview started. Do you want to take over from here?
3: Um, well, uh, all I know is that I was contacted by one of the producers from Coast to Coast uh, just before the interview was scheduled to begin, and she said that uh, um, George Knapp was experiencing intermittent um, power problems, and because there was no reliable connection, that they would have to reschedule the, the interview, and so that was uh, the, the first I heard, and uh, and then later on, I found out a little bit more that uh, the area that George Knapp lived in uh, lost lost power Around the the time just before the interview was to begin, so that was a very interesting coincidence. Um, I I certainly um, can't say for certain that uh, this this had uh, some ulterior motive behind it uh, concerning uh, what was to be revealed on the um, interview. But uh, certainly, I think it uh, it is fair to say that uh, there was a very important um, event that uh, I was going to be discussing during the interview with George Knapp that millions of people would have heard of, and because of the anniversary of this event, uh, this uh, had the potential to, to really get a lot of people's attention.
0: Well,
1: we now have the privilege of, to be speaking with you, and hopefully you'll share some of the highlights that the Coast to Coast uh, audience, which, by the way, our audience also listens to Coast to Coast, so we hope that they listen to what you have to say. We're very excited to know what you were going to say that night.
3: Well, uh, the, the most important was that, uh, in, in fact, the, the date of the interview, which was February 22nd. Oh, uh, pretty much coincided with the 55th anniversary of President Eisenhower's alleged meeting with extraterrestrials at Edwards Air Force Base on the uh, evening and morning of February 20, 21st of 1954. Uh, the allegations that he had uh, a secret meeting at Edwards have been uh, circulating for, for many, many years. In fact, uh, they began in, in April of 1954 uh, with, a, with a letter by a reverend in the area of uh, Los Angeles, who who claimed that he, he uh, was privy to that uh, earlier meeting, uh, and there have been various whistleblowers that over the years have come forward to say that uh, yes, that they saw documents or that they knew of uh, the the meeting and that they had uh, certainly had prior, first-hand access to some of the documents or the events themselves um, concerning Eisenhower having that meeting. Uh, what I discussed. During my presentation was the fact that uh, since the over the last five years since I first began to write about the Eisenhower E.T. meeting, there has been more important evidence that has come forward, evidence that, to my mind, conclusively proves that President Eisenhower did go to Edwards Air Force Base for some reason. Um, and, and, of course, it did certainly helped substantiate what the whistleblowers uh, were were alleging. And so I was going to go over uh, some of the evidence um, that uh, I presented during my presentation at, at Laughlin at the International UFO Congress concerning that meeting. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very happy to share that with you and your audience, uh, if you'd like.
1: Absolutely. We can't wait to hear it.
3: Well, uh, one of the most important developments has been the emergence of a, um, a, a former U.S. Air Force medic who served at, at the time at George Air Force Base, which is in the vicinity of Palm Springs, California, which is where Eisenhower was allegedly having his um, uh, holiday holiday. uh, around that period of February 20, 1954. And what this uh, medic was able to confirm was that his medical unit was requested to provide standby ambulance uh, service for uh, President Eisenhower's plane that landed at nearby Norton Air Force Base. That was Air Force One and that uh, Eisenhower's plane was accompanied by a second plane, which carried the press and so forth. Um, and that what happened was that uh, as soon as Eisenhower's plane landed, that he then immediately got out and was taken to a smaller craft, a smaller airplane called a, a C-45 Beechcraft. And that took off for the vicinity, in the vicinity of of Palmdale, which is uh, where Edwards Air Force Base is located. So, um, so that was very powerful confirmation that yes, indeed um, um, Eisenhower did do something uh, that evening that, that was official in nature and was not in any way connected to the alleged emergency dental treatment that uh, was the official story for why, uh, why Eisenhower was absent and why the press corps couldn't find him on the evening and of um, February 20. We also have been able to confirm um, and, and documents are available that uh, Edwards Air Force Base was closed for three days over that period of February twenty, twenty first And that uh, the the pyramid uh, alert system that the US Air Force had in place at the time was used to basically inform base personnel that the, the base was closed, that no one could get in or out for security p- uh, uh, processes. And this is very highly unusual. It's very rare that an Air Force Base will close for any period of time. Um, and but nevertheless, uh, Norton. Uh, sorry. Uh, Edwards Air Force Base was closed for those three days. Um, in In addition, um, I've been able to get the testimonies of of two widows of people who had. Uh, First hand experience concerning Eisenhower having uh, either met with extraterrestrials, taken to a, a secure facility uh, involving a fly uh, in, that housed flying sources um, and that even agreements were involved uh, one of the one of the widows um, basically divulged what her husband had told her uh, that uh, he was a um, an, an ex uh, military policeman for the Air Force and that he was on hangar duty on the evening of February 20, 1954. And uh, his job was to basically make sure that no one entered into this hangar, which he was aware housed a flying saucer. And he says, on that evening, President Eisenhower was actually whisked to that hangar, taken to the hangar, and, and taken inside. And his job was to basically make sure no one went in. And, and, and of course, he was authorized to use deadly force to um, maintain the, um, the, the security of that hangar. So that, that again, is powerful testimony that Eisenhower was taken out to Edwards. Uh, we also have the testimony of another widow concerning um, her husband, who worked uh, as a um, security tester uh, his, his role was to basically check security at, at all secure facilities and departments in the in the Pentagon, and so he would his job was actually to break into various Pentagon facilities to test uh, the their security uh, procedures and and how good they were and so he was he broke into one secure facility and he says while he was in there he was going through the various um, documents that were available and he saw a picture of President Eisenhower with an extraterrestrial huh. um, and that's right yes he was with an et and he also saw an agreement that had been signed in other words he saw a, a copy of a treaty um this 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 was very exciting testimony because uh this this person um uh was someone who did have access in the normal course of his duties now unfortunately um he is uh anonymous um i haven't had Sorry, I don't have permission to release his name, even though I know his name. I don't have permission to release his name um, simply because he was warned uh, prior to his um, death under... um He'd, he died uh, recently, and uh, he basically died—it was a suicide, unfortunately. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that was that he, w- he was very, very depressed over the fact that he knew things that uh, he felt the American public should know. He felt very strongly the American public was being denied uh, important information information. Uh, but that he felt that it was his patriotic duty not to break his uh, uh, security oath. And so he was caught in this very uh, difficult situation that I think many military personnel Experience who uh, who do sign on to these uh, uh, security oaths or debrief not to reveal anything and uh, and he basically carried that secret to the grave without going public but he did tell his wife um, and she has kind of forwarded that on to a number of uh, um, researchers and it found its way to me. And and interestingly enough, also uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell was someone who apparently uh, spoke to this whistleblower. So that's something that I hope to confirm in in the near future.
1: Very, very interesting.
3: And and there is, uh, the other development also uh, is um, the emergence of a Vatican whistleblower, a Jesuit priest in the Vatican who has come forward to say that, um, yes, indeed, there was a meeting at Edwards Air Force Base and that the Vatican was involved, uh, that they sent a representative, uh, Cardinal Francis McIntyre, who was at the time Bishop of Los Angeles, and that he went to that meeting and that uh, after the meeting, which did involve extraterrestrial craft landing and the extraterrestrials meeting with President Eisenhower, that he went after that meeting, uh, took a plane to the Vatican to uh, brief Pope Pius, and that on, on route, that he, his plane landed on route, and he was approached by uh, a, a U.S. Air Force uh, officer, and basically asked out of patriotic, uh, for, for patriotic reasons, not to tell anyone else what he had experienced at Edwards Air Force Base and, and basically pleaded with uh, Cardinal McIntyre that he shouldn't Tell the Pope about what uh, he had seen and and witnessed. Uh, but uh, Cardinal McIntyre basically held firm that uh, he was in fact uh, the Pope's representative, and he was on a bound to tell the Pope. And and so he eventually continued and and told the Pope and that uh, and that the Vatican. Uh, created or um, renamed a, a very secretive Vatican organization to take responsibility for the extraterrestrial issue.
1: Why would the Vatican be involved in something that has such a high security, high of national security concern?
3: well i I guess uh, it really does come down to the vatican 's um, uh, role over in, in history in terms of having um, a lot of authority um, uh, during the Second World War. The Vatican played a very important role in, in help in helping Project Paperclip move forward right. the, the Vatican um, helped many former Nazis escape to the u s and escape to south america and and many of these Nazis of course were highly were very strongly involved in various uh, uh, projects that the US was conducting um, not only the development of of rockets but also atomic energy apparently that uh, this was something that the uh, Vatican was very involved in 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 having these uh, Nazi officials basically repatriated or taken out of Europe secretly and and taken to various secure locations. So so the Vatican was very involved in these very highly classified security operations. So I think uh, uh, Eisenhower at the time uh, and the national security officials were quite Used to the the role of the Vatican in terms of helping with these very classified uh, processes, and that the Vatican could be trusted to keep a secret. Are you? A- and so I think that yes, and I, and I would say that that's why the that's why the Vatican was invited to participate in that um, in that meeting.
1: Are you aware of what actually transpired in terms of what agreements were made during that meeting?
3: that meeting in february of 1954 i believe was the first in a series of meetings uh, involving president eisenhower uh, the meeting itself occurred 9 days before the testing of the of the largest ever hydrogen bomb uh, that the US has ever blown which is the, the uh, which is the Bravo test that was roughly 15 megatons which is close to a thousand times the destructive power of the bombs dropped at uh, Hiroshima and uh, th- that this was uh, also not that long after President Eisenhower had, had given his famous Atoms for Peace speech at the United Nations in, in December of 1953 so less, so less than two months after that Atoms for Peace speech President Eisenhower secretly goes to Edward Woods Air Force Base to conduct secret nuclear diplomacy with extraterrestrial ambassadors who were basically, I I guess, trying to get the uh, U.S. to stop its nuclear testing program. And unfortunately, because the Soviet Union at the time did not agree to... Uh, share or pass on its nuclear know-how to the United Nations for the peaceful use of uh, nuclear weapons, that I believe that uh, Eisenhower's national security team thought that there was no way the U.S. could not go ahead with its uh, hydrogen bomb testing program because, the, because if it didn't, the Soviet Union would, and that would uh, create a, a, a very imbalanced uh, security situation with the Soviet Union.
1: I understand on the cover of your new book, You have a picture of uh, President Eisenhower. Do you touch a lot on, on, on this subject?
3: Uh, yes, in that uh, new book exposing U.S. government policies on extraterrestrial life, which was in fact launched officially launched at the uh, at the International UFO Congress. So this was uh, this was the official launch, and I think um, this is uh, something that just kind of makes me a little suspicious about the timing of of, of what happened with that coast-to-coast Coast interview not going ahead with the power blackout, uh, because the the launch of the book, uh, the the first chapter of the book deals with the secret agreements. So the first chapter of that book, goes into detail into how agreements have been reached over um, many decades. Uh, it goes over the, the scope of the, the agreements. Um, it goes over who participated in the agreements, the the implications of the agreements. And so I go into great detail into the secret agreements that President Eisenhower was involved in. Um, but nevertheless, uh, in answer to that earlier question of yours, uh, the Edwards Air Force Base meeting was the first in a series. There were other meetings I mentioned, um, I also mentioned during my presentation here, uh, and, and and is also in the book, the Holloman Air Force Base meeting in February of 1955. So, so less than, just under a year later, President Eisenhower again secretly travels to uh, an Air Force Base to, to conduct the, uh, the plane. Diplomacy with extraterrestrial ambassadors. And I think that that is where he uh, participated in signing agreements. That's where I believe the agreements uh, began at the Holloman Air Force Base meeting in 1955 and that the agreements eventually involved the uh, re- uh, exchange of resources and, uh, and in return, uh, extraterrestrials were able to have um, a certain... Uh, have permission to participate or to continue their abduction program
1: folks in addition to what dr sala revealed to the ufo international congress at Laughlin, this is a, an exclusive of the veritas show so the book is it now for sale and congratulations by the way
3: I'll- Thank you, Mel. Yes, uh, the book is now for sale. Uh, you can go uh, online to Amazon.com and you can just type in Exposing US Government Policies on Extraterrestrial Life or you can go to my website, just exopolitics.org and you'll find the uh, information there on on the book. And the book will also eventually be inv- available through the bookstores. People can order it through their, their local bookstore. Um, but certainly for now, if you wanted to get it uh, as quickly as possible, uh, go, to, go to Amazon and, and it's all there.
1: Great. And can you give us a a quick summary of what transpired at the UFO International Congress?
3: Well, it's been a great Congress. Um, I think what we have seen here is just the, uh, the more of the historical information concerning government involvement in extraterrestrial life, uh, suppressing UFOs, flying saucer information has, has emerged. It just seems that uh, there's, there's more clarity in the field now. Just more, more information is coming out. There seems to be a trend towards greater openness, um, official openness. We know that various governments have released their UFO flying saucer files over the last few years. Years um, and, and that this openness is is really allowing more information to come out, which is which is very credible, which is documented, and that gives us more clarity into exactly how and why and who's involved in the the whole ET phenomenon. And so this is very encouraging, and, and we uh, expect that uh, this will continue uh, over the last couple of days of the uh, UFO Congress. And I'm looking forward to Nick Pope's presentation uh, later. Uh, where he, he's going to be talking about uh, the UK's release of uh, uh, flying saucer files, which are very important and, and very substantive in terms of the contents.
1: Well, and I've seen you write lately a lot of your columns on the Honolulu ExoPolitics exam- Examiner about the Obama administration and some of the uh, cabinet members and so on. Any news on those?
3: Well, I, I think we. Uh, well, actually, there is some very important uh, confirmation I received concerning uh, Admiral Dennis Blair, who is um, the director of national intelligence for Obama. That um, uh, that uh, Admiral Blair, uh, when he was commander of the Pacific Fleet did, in fact, have access to uh, files concerning UFOs, flying sources. So so that was very important because that does confirm that uh, Admiral Blair um, is in the know. And he, as Obama's briefer, I mean, he briefs Obama every day. He gives the national security briefings to Obama. So um, at some point, if Obama hasn't already been briefed, that um, that... Suggests that Obama will eventually be briefed on UFOs, flying saucers, and that's very significant because um, President Clinton was not briefed. President Clinton was not given briefings because his um, um, director of Central Intelligence, who was his daily briefer at the time, uh, John Woolsey, uh, was out of the loop. So, if your briefer is out of the loop, and uh, then obviously he's not going to be able to tell you anything concerning UFOs. Um, Admiral, um, sorry, John. Uh, because he was so out of the loop. I mean, eventually he had great difficulty in seeing President Clinton. Um, And, and of course, this situation is very different for Admiral Blair, who does have direct daily um, briefings with uh, President Obama and can tell him at some point about uh, what he knows about UFOs and extraterrestrial life.
1: Dr. Sala, I know you need to head back to the conference. We really appreciate this last-minute opportunity to uh, brief us on what would have transpired at the Coast to Coast AM interview. Thank you so much. I wish you the best with your book and with your stay at Laughlin, and we'll be in touch.
3: Thank you, Mel, and good luck with the show. Thank you.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be a very special night. Jim Sparks is going to recount you in great detail because he remembers in great detail, which is very uncommon among abductees. Years and years of abductions, what they want, what they did, and where we're going. Stay right there. You don't want to miss this.
0: On the line I took a trip in a flying sausage. the line Well, I took a trip in a flying sausage. On the line I took a trip in a flying saucer. Until I the I took. A trip in a flying sauce On July 12, I I took A trip in a flying sauce On July 12, I I took A trip in a flying sauce On July Until I the 12. A trip in a flying sauce On July the twelfth, I took a trip in a flying sauce On July the twelfth, I took a trip in a flying sauce On July the twelfth, I took a trip in a flying sauce
1: Jim Sparks has had experiences with non-human intelligent beings since 1988. Initially an unwilling abductee, once he was able to put aside his rage, overcome his fear, and accept that he was encountering some sort of technologically advanced beings from which he could not escape, his experiences transformed. Jim has approximately 90% conscious awareness of his experiences, giving him clear memories of amazing technology that includes time travel, invisibility, multidimensional aspects of reality, and manipulation of gravity and electromagnetic fields, as well as information as to why these visitors are here and making their presence known to ordinary people. After a mass abduction in 1996, everything changed for Jim, and he was initiated into the role of participant rather than abductee. The son of hardworking Italian-American parents, Jim was raised in Florida where his childhood memories were of a vast unknown filled with strange and interesting creatures, the Everglades. He graduated high school in South Florida and studied business and real estate at community colleges in both Miami and Houston. Although his abduction experiences began while in Texas in 1988, he would travel to North Carolina as a successful land developer. With us tonight, from one desert to another desert, Jim Sparks. Hello, Jim, and welcome to The Veritas Show. Hey, it's great to be here. Jim, on this show, we like to become familiar with our guests before we talk about their stories. Before we get into your multi-decade odyssey, can you describe your childhood, the general description of your upbringing, education, and your work experience? I want the audience to get to know Jim Sparks, the man.
2: Oh, sure well i i was uh raised in uh, south florida and i had a very uh lucky childhood because i grew up in a time in the uh, in the 50s and into the 60s where it was not overdeveloped uh, our uh, front yard ended where the everglades began and uh it it made a very very extremely natural setting so every animal that you can fathom or imagine uh, that would be uh uh Relative to the swamp and the and uh, the open air and and the beautiful woods is uh, the way I was raised. Uh, my family, my father was a, a hardworking person. Uh, he uh, grew up uh, in New York, and he originally was from Sicily. My mother um, grew up in New York also, but and her family was uh, from Italy. And my dad worked for a company at that time when I was growing up called Aerodex, and he uh, inspected uh, jet engines uh, for a living. Uh, He worked for that company for about 15 years, and then he uh, went on to uh, start a small trucking company. And then uh, as a child growing up, I worked with my father, and uh, and we were hardworking people, and it was a wonderful experience. experience as far as nature is concerned, then I got to see the opposite, uh, take place. I started, I got to see development come into place when I was between the ages of 16 and 18 years old. And that was a hard thing for me to live with because what I saw was the, the beautiful natural beauty of, uh, Southeast Florida, uh, turn into what today they would call Miami. Sure. Uh, concrete total. Now, you know, of course there's neat things that the city has to offer, but, uh, I rather enjoy the, the that style of life. And uh when I as growing up as a boy, uh then um I got with a company that uh, transferred me out of the state and uh, I worked for a publishing company for 3 or 4 years and my territory was the southeastern United States. So I I was in almost every town and every city and uh, uh in the south. And then from there I got into real estate and uh moved over to Houston and was selling new homes, and I got married. And uh, and then I went into uh, dividing uh, lots, uh, buying big parcels of property and dividing them into lots and sold them for home sites. Uh, But I was really uh, picky and fussy uh, about the tree cutting uh, issue when it came to these lots. So when people bought my home sites, I wrote into the deed that they couldn't cut down any more trees than... what they needed just to build the house and about 20 feet outside the homes. So the trees had to maintain. Uh, my goal was uh, I was always green oriented. I guess you can say before it was even popular. My goal was that 50 or a hundred years from, from now, um, any properties that I had anything to do with would always still, still be heavily wooded and natural. And uh, as far as I was concerned, up, up until 1988, I, uh, Shirley was a business person, um, took care of my wife, my family, which was my wife at the time, and in 1988 is when the abduction scenario started, and that was when I was in Houston, and I was also traveling to North Carolina for business.
1: Now, you have been married and divorced, and I'm sure that these events that we're going to be speaking of tonight have impacted your jobs, your relationships, even your family interactions. Can you briefly discuss the personal impact that these events had on you?
2: Well, these uh, these beings, uh, when they first came into play, um, were extremely intrusive. Uh, the, uh, the MO was isolation, fear, and confusion. Uh, I was never invited. I was never asked uh, if I would like to partake in any of that stuff. And as far as I was concerned, prior to 1988... Um, these things weren't even possible. Uh, I've, I've always been considered to be, uh, an honest, uh, down to earth, truthful person. And when these things started happening, uh, I told my family and it, uh, they rejected it. Um, they thought, gee, Jim was going crazy when I, at the time I was uh, going to the church. And when I told the church, they thought it was demonic. Uh, my friends, uh, couldn't figure out what the heck was going on, uh, and they figured maybe I lost it. But uh, the difference between myself and better than 95 or 98% of almost all abductees is the fact that uh, I've got the benefit of the curse. At the time, it was a curse, but now I see it as a benefit of having almost 100% total recall. So whenever these... uh, uh, Abductions took place um, in which I've seen over the years. They would always take the physical memory away from um, abductees, but in my case, they let me retain it. So having retained it and having all that detail and coming out with all this information in those early years, and that was back in '88, it was sort of like a living hell. So I call the first um, six years of the experiences traumatic, and um, Jim. I don't terrible. mean to interrupt
1: you, sure, but why why do you think they have made an exception with you with giving you the privilege of ninety five percent recollection
2: i I think it's because they they were uh, there's various reasons that they even picked particular individuals in my case, I learned that they had been following family lines they follow family lines for thousands and thousands and thousands of years uh the majority of these interactions have been with, uh, for myself personally, have been with a species commonly referred to as greys. I think the uh, the problem that they have when they abduct people is the the messages in getting through, people are more uh, in tune to the messenger and they're more in tune to the experience. And, and any messages or anything that can be learned... Seem to be uh, overshadowed by the fact of by the mere interaction fact. So in my case, the impact um, of of the memory was almost I think experimental. I think they picked a handful of us globally in those days, and and let us uh, maintain or retain the memory. And I got to tell you, I mean, there's just a lot of things about these uh, non-human intelligent beings that are just put you in shock. They're traumatic. They're scary. Um, they're a lot like us in a lot of ways, and they're a lot not like us in a lot of ways. And it's it's hard to deal with what they really are. Uh, and it took years for me to get comfortable with interacting with these things. So I don't want to sound scary. I, you know, whenever anybody asks me, uh, Mel, about the first uh, six years, it will it, always sound like a horrific nightmare. And I break it down in three sections. The first six years were traumatic. The second six years, I started seeing a picture, and then the last in the last six to seven years or so, a well, little longer than that, uh, I see the agendas and I see where they 're going but so
1: we 're talking about almost two almost two decades of abduction
2: yeah well, yep slightly little slightly more than two decades that 's correct Now
1: you just mentioned that you believe that this happens through generations. Have you confirmed with your ancestors or or, or your parents that they were actually abducted as well?
2: Well, an interesting scenario came up around the seventh or the the eighth year of the experiences. In the first six years, uh, my mother always uh, remained silent. My father uh, voiced the fact that he said these things are impossible, didn't want to know anything about it. And I learned the hard way, actually, within the first year, just to stop talking about these things. And uh, everybody thought I was fine, you know. And, and then, we were, of course, we're talking about 17, 20 years ago now. But sure. things really changed. But, but at that time, my mom uh, just uh, maintained silence and uh, just kind of shook her head every time I talked about it. But to, make a, to answer your question, I was, uh, it was around the seventh year I was sitting out in the balcony, with mom or her porch at her home at the time in Florida I was visiting and uh, she said you know they're always nice to me and I sort of knew what I thought she was talking about I go who is mom she goes the nice doctors
0: the hmm. aliens
2: she said that they put me on the gurney they ask me how I'm doing they check me up they give me a checkup they make sure that I'm healthy Um, they say nice things to me. My mother, in in a lot of ways, she passed away recently, but my mother, in a lot of ways...
0: Sorry to hear that.
2: Oh, thanks. It was quite childlike when it came to certain things, innocent. And and then she spoke of them as being nice and kind, and I said, you know, uh, to myself... I was about to give her to the third degree. I was about to say, Mom, you know, in those first six, seven years, you know, you kept your mouth shut and you supported the family and as if um, I was something wrong with your son instead of me telling the truth. And I said, all of a sudden, you're spilling the beans like this. And I wanted to give her the third degree. But I let her talk on and I kept my mouth shut and I decided it would be better just to see where she wanted to go with it. And basically, she ended it on a positive note. And um, from that point on I never really brought it up with her again except for the fact that I knew now and she told me and I felt it would be better not to go any further with it that she has had experiences herself and they were positive so to answer your question yeah so I I know at least my mother
1: how do you separate real abductions from dreams and when did you realize they were not dreams
2: well in the in when it first started uh, Back in mid-1988, I kept having what I thought was a a reoccurring dream. And the dream was always the same. Uh, I would have it two or three times a week, sometimes more often. A week would go by, and I wouldn't have the same reoccurring dream. And then again, I would have it several times a week. And that went on for a couple of months, and it was always the same thing. This is how it started. I was in my bed, something or some things were coming into my room, Uh, they were uh, escorting me down the hallway into the guest room, we would walk through the window into the woods, across the lawn into the woods, and then they would bring me back the same way. And as these, uh, what I thought were dreams continued, uh, one of them I woke up, so to speak, in the middle of, and I found that I was actually in the hallway, I was awake, I could hit myself, Uh, When I got into the uh, guest room where they normally would walk me through the window, I got scared to death. And and we walked through the window, and then I blacked out. Coming back, I would remember coming back through the window. Also, what was amazing was um, in our front yard, we had thousands of uh, little honeysuckle flowers that used to be on the lawn, and they would stick to your feet. And we had a ground floor window in that guest room, and in... uh, when After uh, that one particular event that I woke up, so to speak, uh, at, I went into the guest room and I could see my footprints in the lawn and I could see at one point where my heel was embedded in the lawn of my foot, uh, footprint and the, uh, my toes and the, and the uh, ball of my feet were embedded in the carpet and the flowers were stuck to the carpet where the ball of my feet was, and then I could see my footprints going into the carpet as if I walked through the window and half a foot was in the lawn. And then I knew that something uh, very unnatural was taking place, that it wasn't a dream. Uh, Then, um, within a few days, I got abducted again. But when I got abducted uh, that second time after that, that was a whole different world. Um, There's two ways, two technologies that this particular species used to abduct you. One I call the easy way, where they escort you, and it's a dreamlike thing that I just described. And then the other way is what I call the a hard way, is when their crafts are in flight or they're hovering, and they actually take you from point A to point B, and you feel and sense and see, and you're wide awake through the entire process, and it's horrifying. Over over the months and years, you get used to it, and it doesn't bother you, but uh, there's a sensation that takes place in the pit of your stomach. Uh, it starts to raise up to your upper torso. Your uh, your heart starts racing. It feels like it's racing a 1,000 beats per minute. Uh, Is it painful? It, it It's scary, and you feel like you're going to die. Then you become paralyzed. It's more scary. The sensations are just awful, but not necessarily pain. Then there's a loud, whirling, whipping sound in your head, and it gets louder and louder, and it's like you think your eardrums inside your head are going to burst. You black out, and then when you regain consciousness, you're at point B. Point B is inside a craft, and you are you. You are awake. You are there in the physical. You know you're not dreaming. You are breathing the air. You can pinch yourself. You can slap yourself and you're interacting with these things face to face. So it's, so Jim, it's a dream uh, at that point.
1: Jim, what's happening from point A to point B? I know you're scared and you have all those feelings, but what is actually transpiring from point A to point B?
2: I, well, I know that, you know, it's pretty simple, but yet it's complicated. It's simple in, in a sense where point A is where you're at your home, you're in your home, maybe in the bedroom, in the living room, or you're laying down, or point A could be your car, Point B is on board a craft somewhere in space. And so what happens in between, I think when you feeling all these sensations, it must be some sort of a tractor beam, and it, uh, it affects your metabolic system. It affects your body. It affects your mind. That's where your, your, the heart racing comes in. That's where the, uh, a sensation you feel in your stomach working its way up to the torso, I think that's when it's got a hold of you or it's grabbed you to pull you, literally, I call it being pulled from point A to point B. Also, uh, during the course of that, you feel an extreme sense of acceleration. Uh, it feels like you're, uh, instead of going up, you feel like you're being pulled down, and you feel like you're, you're going down a roller coaster only 100 times faster. And the G-forces are so extreme that you black out. So when you black out, I think you're somewhere in between point A and point B where this thing is pulling you to point B. And then once you get to point B, you regain consciousness and the transport is over. It's it's a horrifying thing, but at the same time, you know, again, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, a, a, a spooky thing or a nightmare. Um, if you take an astronaut and, you know, when they lift off to go to space, um, all the G-forces and all the vibrations and all the sounds, if you had never experienced that before, well, uh, to a person that didn't even know they were going to be lifted into space, it would be a horrifying nightmare. But to those people, they're trained, they know what to expect and they go through it and it's fine. So I sort of look at it as being the same thing.
1: You went to a very important person. You went to the late Dr. John Mack to help you in dealing with these entities. How did Dr. Mack help you, and how did he deal with your experience?
2: Well, Dr. Mac uh, noticed right off the bat that um, that in in his in his studies, in all the years that he was studying the phenomena, that uh, he had uh, ran into a person, namely chiefly me, who had the ninety-five or ninety-eight percent total recall, and he had never had a subject like that. So, uh, uh, Dr. Mac. Um, uh, gravitated to me, and I him, uh, over the years, and we became friends. uh, We were friends, and that's all the point he passed away, but we became friends out of this, but of course we were working together. But uh, in those early years, uh, he had a host of questions uh, that a lot of abductees couldn't answer for the simple fact that um, the memory was taken away. So uh, what gravitated to him to me at first in particular was the fact that I was able to fill gaps in a lot of his work. And, um, and then, of course, it, uh, it, the relationship nurtured and, and matured over the years.
1: Were you awake while seeing this happen? Every time you were pooled and you were going through walls, was there an opening? They dematerialized the wall, or were you just going through it?
2: Uh, well, that's, that's a very good question, and I like it. Uh, they create some sort of a field that renders the laws of physics as we understand it. Uh, they just don't apply. The laws of physics, as we don't understand, do not apply. But I always took a, um, a, a scientific point of view, even though I'm not a scientist, and I've always taken a journalistic point of view, even though I'm not a journalist, to just to relate to what I've experienced to the best of my ability not to add or take away. They create some sort of field that renders matter. Like I said, the laws of physics don't apply. So when it comes to a wall, let's say a wall in a room, they create this field, and then you can physically walk through the wall as if the wall was an apparition, as if it were a mist.
0: <coughs>
2: Excuse me. Once you get through to the other side, it solidifies again. So uh, they, I know they do use dimensions to go from point A to point B. And that is, that's one way that, that they do go.
1: I know for the scientifically oriented type out there listening, I, I know many must say, give me proof. I was one of them. However, after listening to you, reading your book, and meeting you in person, I also conclude that it is worth investigating dollars to look more into this phenomenon, because I believe it's truly happening. Jim, at the time you started being abducted, you were married and had your business. Some of these abductions were happening on multiple times during the week. How were you able to transition to your normal life after each experience?
2: There wasn't a normal life in those first few years, no doubt, particularly the first 18 months. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had uh, two businesses going. One, the one I mentioned earlier, which I was uh, buying land, dividing and selling it, uh, site separate home sites. Right. And then I had a partnership called... Uh, Uh, J&J Properties, and uh, my partner and I basically did the same thing, but it was a separate entity from what I was doing individually. And uh, I wasn't able to uh, go about my business uh, because it was traumatic. Uh, First of all, I uh, didn't want anything to do with it. I never cooperated with these beings. They were hard on me. I was paralyzed most of the time. They put me through emotional experiment, experiments. Uh, force learned me to learn for, used force, in a sense, uh, which you'd have to read about those things in detail. I know you read about it in the book, to to learn symbols, to translate symbols uh, into block, our block lettering into symbols, to communicate that way. They extracted semen. Um, you know, all the things that you could, uh, that 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 were so traumatic that when I would come back, I couldn't deal with it. So I didn't go to work. I tried to get away from these guys uh, in those first few years. I thought I could escape. I would go. And that uh, what kept me, what sustained me financially and inevitably my wife during that process thought it would be better that I would be by myself. And so she went and stayed with family in those early years too. And so I was alone uh, in, in, in those periods. And, but, uh, I would uh, try to get away from these guys in those early years. I would go and rent myself a, a hotel room, in a high-rise uh, hotel, in the middle of downtown Houston. I was again, I was living in Texas at the time, thinking I could get away and I would get abducted. I would drive from state to state, thinking I could get away and I would get abducted. And then finally, it dawned on me uh, that hey, these things have come a godzillion miles. What I think I'm going to do, drive six, seven hundred miles and get away from them? No. But uh, I, th- I think the uh, well, primarily those those early years were so tough, is because I was actually getting to experience them for what they really were, and them not masquerading themselves as something else, and then taking the physical memory away.
1: How did you discuss all this with your ex-wife? And was she ever taken, or did she see you being taken? I know you said she moved and left you alone. But was he ever there when this happened?
2: In, in those early years, I did see her on board a few times. Uh, and when I would, when the event was over, and I felt like when I did see her on board, that they had involved this person for many years, even before me. Uh, when the event was over, she was one of those that they took the memory away. But she would have some memory of it. And when I would start to, re- when she would start to relate some things to me. It would be as almost as if she was brainwashed and a different uh, uh, her face would change her features would change, and then she would clam up and pretend as if she didn't know what this was all about and If I pursued it any further with her, she became um, very emotional and sometimes almost violent in her nature, and I learned that they had uh, showed her uh, or Trained her, or I don't know, I guess they could say mind controlled her in a sense, uh, not to be able to respond to any questions when it came to, comes to this uh, phenomenon. So, no matter how I pried or no matter how I pushed, um, she uh, would be very resistant. And over time, I realized that it was like uh, talking to a brick wall, and then she became so uh, restless with it and disturbed by it that I felt it was better just to leave her alone with it. Her way of coping was denial, and, and that's the way I left it with her.
1: Why do you believe that you have, I think you've said this before, but with your ex-wife, why do you believe you have recollection and she did not? What spe- special qualities do you bring to the entities that they allow you and not her?
2: For starters, um, I I didn't want anything to do with this stuff. Uh, and, and I was always resistant, and I was always looking for ways... Um, to um, to fight them, to not cooperate with them uh, and that was always my goal in those first few years was to be nasty and to make any, make it everything as difficult as possible for these beings and um, I think that resistance and that hate and that loathing that I had uh, and not being the type of person of like, well, okay, well, I'm just going to let you do whatever you want to do and let me see what I can learn. I think it sparks something in them uh, to work with me that way so I can retain my memory. Also, uh, I never I never accepted anything they said as uh, truth.
1: And Jim Holder right there. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Jim Sparks on The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. of the great music you hear right here on The Veritas Show is supplied by the independent artists from GarageBand.com If you hear a song you like go over to GarageBand.com look it up and download it You can even buy the group's CDs in many cases right there at GarageBand.com And we're back to The Veritas Show We're here with Jim Sparks abductee and author of The Keepers an alien message for the human race. It's for sale at Jim's website. That's jim-sparks.com. We also have a link on our website. And Jim, we were referring to your experience and how your wife was also involved. Did you actually tell anybody else, family members, relatives, business colleagues, and what was the reaction?
2: It was always disbelief. So, and uh, what I learned and I learned the hard way is it, particularly in those first six, seven years. If I don't talk about it, everybody thought I was fine. So I clammed up. I kept it to myself in those, um, in those early years. When uh, different uh, programming programming started coming out on television, books started coming out on the subject, Bud Hopkins, uh, Professor Mack, Linda Moulton Howe, um, documentaries were, were coming, coming through. And then family and friends started, they remembered what I was saying six, seven years earlier, because I didn't have the privilege of all that stuff in those years. Um, there wasn't any, um, abductee support group, at least in the area where I lived in those days. There, uh, MUFON at that time was a nuts and bolts organization and they didn't want, I'm, I'm, Believe me, MUFON is now very supportive, don't get me wrong, extremely. But in those early years, you may know that MUFON was more interested in um, hardware. They wanted to know about the ships, and they didn't really want to know that too much about people being abducted. So there wasn't a support system, but as the years uh, progressed and all these things started coming out, then people started coming to me instead of me having to say, hey, this was happening, that was happening. They were saying, gosh, you know what, I'm so sorry. I remember all the things you were saying, and now I'm seeing that you're pretty unique in this area. But um, to, fend, to fend for them in a sense, because uh, as I mentioned earlier, what, what makes these beings so difficult to be with is the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, they're, they're not like us, and then in a lot of ways they are like us. And I like to break down the differences, and maybe it, you can see why uh, they are the way they are. In particular, the grays. Uh, for starters, um, they think anywhere from 10 to 100 times faster. They process data in their minds that quick. And in a sense, that can be extremely intimidating. Um, they're totally, they're 100% telepathic. I've never heard one speak. Nor, nor move their mouths, their thin little lips. Uh, they have the uh, mental capacity to, to screen image, meaning that they can transmit uh, uh, thoughts and pictures in your mind so you can understand a reality. Jim, these- I,
1: I, I don't mean to stop you, but you're saying that their communication is always telepathic, so you were actually communicating with them via telepathic uh, method. Why did they, and we're going to get through this also, the, the actual symbols, the alphabet type that you learned afterwards, why did they teach you symbols if you were able to communicate with them telepathically?
2: Well, what I didn't realize at the time until after the sixth year, when this stuff started making sense after the sixth year, I became cooperative. And that's when all, all this knowledge poured in, and I, and I started learning, I started seeing an agenda, I saw their purpose, I saw what they were, I started understanding the nature of the beast. And I, it was a whole different world for me after the sixth year. But telepathic communication is extremely rudimentary, it's extremely slow. And uh, it's like the way you and I converse and the way we all converse is extremely slow. It's a, the, the, In comparison, which is still a, a larger extreme, it would be like uh, having dial-up versus a high-speed cable internet.
1: Good analogy. Able okay. To
2: tran- transmit data back and forth between two beams. So what they were doing was showing that there's a heck of a lot more efficient way to communicate. Uh, I, I was forced... Um, to literally, like Morse code, convert block lettering A through with no Qs or Zs into symbols. And I didn't want to do it. And, you know, I fought them tooth and nail those first few years until I started seeing what it was all about. And through that symbolic form of communication, uh, you can take a symbol that's the size of a 50-cent piece, they can flash it before your eyes, And then, like you said, we'll get into that later. Uh, And you can see the content of an entire two-and-a-half-hour movie, know it, understand it, have the emotions within a split second. We're capable of bypassing all the normal ways of receiving data, and our brain is capable of processing, calculating, and storing two-and-a-half, three hours of information within a split second. But you can't do that just via telepathic back and forth. It works in a symbolic form.
1: Jim, is that knowledge that you can actually teach someone, someone or do you need a special
2: device? Well, I, I know that there's there's, there's, basic, there's basic stuff that's, that's involved with it that's akin to, in a sense, uh, shorthand or Morse code, but one would have to say a lot more advanced. It's motion, it's direction, uh, and it's visualizing symbols. But it's, uh, yes, can it be taught? I believe it can be, yes, to answer your question um the technology let's see i'll, I'll get it's trying to get this into words the technology for example for thought activated technology for to make uh, physical machines move by thought our brain waves are going out sporadically whenever we think and here's what a big part of the training was um our brain waves go out chaotically sporadically and in most cases, the, that electrical transmission is, is transmitted and it's unp- unpredictable or hard to pinpoint exactly what, what it's saying. As part of the training, uh, you're teaching your mind to put your thoughts in symbolic form. Uh, and the, base, the, basic, the basic rudimentary example would be take a triangle. If you draw a triangle with your finger in your mind... You could start, let's say, from the left side, go up one line, reach the point, go back down, and then come across at the base. Three moves. Right. One, two, three. That's a triangle. If, uh, a, a big part of that process in those early years was to focus brain waves or your thinking into symbolic form, which makes it something that can be received. So now you're transmitting a symbol Instead of a thought, instead of make the triangle something like, I want a glass of water. I'm going to be very basic here in those early years. I want a glass of water. And that represents the triangle. And what you have to do in your mind is remove your finger and see the line go from right to left. I'm sorry, start on the left hand corner, start from the bottom, go up, go down and go across. Constantly do the same thing. That means I want a glass of water, I want a glass of water, I want a glass of water. You're putting these electrical impulses or thoughts in your mind in this symbolic form, and your body is moving to it. This is is how it went in those early years. So my body would vibrate slightly up, vibrate slightly down for the, the return point of the triangle, and then from right to left, and to the point where it was fast. Quicker, 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 quicker to the point, like it's almost a buzz, and then you practice another symbol behind it, meaning "thank you for the glass of water." Now I'm just relating different symbols to different meanings, and so you're thinking in your mind in the symbolic form where you're taking block lettering, shorthanding the shorthanding the block lettering in these symbolic forms, and you're 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 structuring a sentence. Uh, the size in your mind of a, of a hair. And then you're you're doing the same thing with a paragraph, then you're doing the same thing with a page, so that the information is transmitted so fast, So and and, it, and you're transmitting it, and it's easier to receive. So to answer your question, yes, I think it can be taught, and there was a lot more to it than what I just described. Now, at the Jim, early years... I'm can, sorry, can, go ahead.
1: Can we assume that other... Others out there may have had the same recollection than you have. And if so, have you come in contact with any of them who have learned the same, let's call it alien language, in which you can actually use the knowledge to communicate?
2: So far, it's been an interpersonal thing with me at this stage, myself personally, and, and in communication with them, where in the early years, it used to be totally telepathic. In other words, it's like hearing a voice in your head, and then you're transmitting your voice to their head. And now, uh, in these latter years, uh, there could be I could be outside with people, and there could be a UFO, and we spot it, and I can have a communication with these beings that would last the length of a second, but I can get 50 pages of text. So so far, it's been it's been a personal thing with them, and it hasn't been so much with. Uh, other individuals at this point, but I suspect down the road it will be.
1: And Jim, for the audience, I want to connect the dots as much as we can, but since we have a limited amount of time, I hope that they will buy the book and read the rest, but I'm going to try to connect dots as much as I can. During the times you were abducted, there was punishment and there were rewards. Mm-hmm. What were some of those rewards and punishments?
2: Well, in the early years, since I was not cooperative, uh, if I had any chance to kill any of them, I would have. Every time I found myself on board, it was always in the same situation. I was sitting on this thing that was like a bench. In front of me was this thing that was a table that had a screen on it that would image things, image uh, different things, and um, I called it a screen table. And about four or five feet in front of that was a screen on a wall I was 100% paralyzed with the exception of being able to move my head up and down enough to see the screen on the wall, enough to see the screen on the table. My right arm was always leaning on the table, and the only thing that could move was my wrist a little bit and my right forefinger. So I was allowed to sketch with my right forefinger uh, like on a pad, so to speak, or on that table in front of me, and whatever I would sketch would come up either on that screen on the table or it would come up um, on, the, on the wall, the wall screen. When I first got there, I was never told anything. I was never told what this was about, what the agenda was, what, what it could turn into, they just barked orders at me, and that's what made me so extremely resistant in those early years. One of the first orders that was barked at me, the first thing that happened was uh, the block letter A came up on the screen on the wall, and next to it, some symbol equivalent of theirs, and the instructions were simple. Uh, sketch this symbol for the letter A. And then I yelled out, no. Why am I here? I don't want to be here. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't know what this is. I don't know who you are. I didn't know what they were at first. I didn't know if they were demons, devils, <laughs> aliens. I had no clue what they were. They never introduced themselves. It was immediately, learn to do this. When I yelled out no, the instructions were, again, sketch the symbol for the block letter A. I screamed out no. So one of the first punishment sessions would be that the air pressure in the room would increase at a quick thump, like, thump, cause pain in my ears. I screamed out, no. Then they would increase the levels of air pressure and pain until the point where you couldn't take it. It was agonizing. And then I would start sketching the, uh, the uh, symbol from the block letter A. It's equivalent. And then I would get to go home. And that's how they treated me in those first several years, and particularly in the first uh, 18 months. I had little to no peripheral vision. They wouldn't let me see who, who my captives were. Sometimes they would come across my field of vision, and I would see the little three-foot workers, and I would see the four-foot um, uh, supervisors, or what I call true grays, and they had their worker beans, which were perform the tasks. And they used other methods um, to get me to cooperate, and now there were reward sessions. And, again, you got to remember, I did not want to go along with any of this, so I always fought them in those early years. Um, the reward sessions initially in the beginning was once I would sketch a symbol, which I had no clue why I was doing this stupid stuff. To me, it was stupid stuff, and I didn't want anything to do with it. I would get to go home sooner. So here the punishment was the air pressure and the pain, and the reward would be get to go home. As months went into a year and a year went into two years and these things kept happening. Now you've got to remember I kept this stuff to myself at that point since no one believed me in those early months. I just went through this. Fortunately for me, which I didn't address, which I was about to, I had my own business which went to pot at that time. And just that was it. It, I couldn't attend to it because of what was going on. Fortunately for me, I had a partnership, as I mentioned earlier, and my partner picked up the slack for me. I had vested some pretty good money into it. He was a friend and a partner, so I was still deriving income, although I wasn't even into my business in in those early years. I completely stayed out of it. The reward session started changing, um, and I was offered these rewards many times in those early years, but I refused it, again, because I did not want to cooperate until I started accepting the rewards. The rewards... So,
1: so they were conditioning you?
2: Yes, absolutely. There's no other way to, better way to put it. Uh, a reward session would be uh, if you do well with the symbols, which I still had no idea what the stupid things were about, we'll uh, let you play with our thought activated machinery or gizmos, and I would say no. Screw you! Excuse my turn. I don't know if that should be in the air. You might want to edit that out. Sorry. But That's anyway, okay. I did say stuff like that. I invented cuss words for those guys, and uh, in those early years, and uh, some of the reward sessions would be to be able to move uh, objects across the table if I wanted to by using thought. You know, stuff that would actually be fun if you were into it, right? And and wanted to be cooperative uh some of the reward sessions were just complete uh euphoric sense sensations of euphoria and this is going to sound kind of gross because this is the part that I was just so against but some of the reward sessions were almost like a sexual euphoria they would bathe you in a field that that the ecstasy of it was phenomenal and of course I would say no I would say no to all of that stuff and so I, I was quite the non-cooperator. What finally started to get me to cooperate was I had learned all these symbols from A to no Z and no Q. So let's just W-X-Y, A to Y, okay, with no Q in between, for whatever reason, okay. like the Q or the Z. And um, once I learned all those symbols and I got them down, then they started with numbers, and I went, "Oh my God!" You know, when is this stuff going to end, and what is the purpose of this? Okay. And then you got to remember, during the course of those first few years, uh, they were extracting semen, they were doing emotional experiments, and so th- there was this stuff that continually going on to keep me angry all the time and not seeing a purpose. I was learning. I was whether whether I knew it or not, I was learning. And once once I got through what I called alien boot camp, which was those first six years. It took me a long ways in a very positive way. But, however, then it went into this number system. And you may remember in the book I wrote uh, that everything changed, uh, almost changed in one day when they came into the room and I'm sitting at this stupid bench in the same stupid place and they presented on the screen a text page about a friend of mine named Jerry in normal block lettering where I could read it. And it's the, it was a story about a friend of mine. And it ended up being somewhere near 50 pages long. After I read the first page, it was just about him as an infant and where he was born. The second page was uh, what he did as a toddler. And then the third page was... Um, how he spent his time when he was five and six and seven years old. And as you can imagine, the story went on to when he went into grade school and into junior high, and I'm reading page after page, and I'm thinking, I go, why are you doing this, okay? But I'm reading it because it was something new and different. It had gotten to the point of the present time or the present day of that time. And
1: this, how do they know this? How, how do they know this information?
2: These guys can... <laughs> Your ability to uh, process and retain and maintain data is phenomenal. How do I? You know, it's like saying, uh, it's like trying to compare a, a 286 chip to a, a Pentium 4. If there is a Pentium 3, so here we got the 286 chip. Mine, they got the Pentium 3. Am I making sense? Right. Okay. Sure.
1: Absolutely. And I'm speaking on behalf of the Earthling, so it's it's all conventional wisdom.
2: Yeah. So how does how does the 286 relate to a Pentium? But yet, even though we're, like I say, there's a lot of things about them that are the same. Not to say we can't be all these things, because this is what this is all about. It's for us to evolve. But I don't want to get too far ahead of the game. I'm reading these pages, and it gets, see, these guys can manipulate time. And time travel is nothing to them. Manipulating time is nothing to them. And it's almost a bore. But with that being said, when it got to the point of the present day, at that time of this person's life, the pages kept reading into what we would perceive as the future. Now I'm seeing where this guy, what he was going to do in his future time. And I'm, now it got my interest even more, right? <laughs> so um, I kept going with it, but the only thing it didn't do was reveal the day and time of, or where or how he died of his death. Okay, so now I was a bit astounded. I still took it somewhat with a grain of salt. Then, after those pages disappeared, now you've got to remember, I'm almost on my sixth year of not knowing what these guys are doing, right? That, that's how bad of a cooperator I was. They, uh, the next page came up it was less than a half a page of those symbols that they taught me tied together and I looked at it and I said God I can read this so if you can try to imagine this six years of this page and then, then you're looking at this page and you're saying I can read this and I read that half a page and it told the whole 50 pages of text within just a minute or two am I making sense?
1: It's the equivalent of downloading as opposed to reading.
2: Correct. But I could, exactly. So as each symbol, it was just all the information was streaming through my mind as I read them. And I got the whole story in a half a page.
1: And Jim Holder right there. We have to take another break. We're here with Jim Sparks, abductee, author of The Keepers*. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, VeritasShow.com, click on subscribe, and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.